This is episode six, Magic Systems, part one. So, what is a magic system? Okay, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I take the the sort of broad view that a magic system is um, the result of what happens when you break from reality in basically any way. Um, so, including whether it's magic in the traditional sense or sci-fi magic quote-unquote like uh transporters and star trek basically anything that is not something that we in our world understand as as realistic yeah and i would probably like i would probably find a better name for it than magic system if we're mm-hmm. going to be including things like lightsabers but mm-hmm. i would include lightsabers as something that goes under the heading of a magic system because you you know, you have a button and you click the lightsaber on and it does this thing that is different from what a normal sword does. And whether you display those rules to the reader or not, we'll, we'll talk about that some, but like, even if you are not displaying those reads to the rules to the reader, they have implicit rules to them. Or even if you're doing magical realism, right? You're, you're bringing that thing in and then that's part of your world and it's otherworldly in some way. And yeah, I, I, you see it across speculative fiction. I've always felt that the distinction between fantasy and science fiction was a very blurry one because a lot of it is about the aesthetic of it mm-hmm. rather than the ideas or the content. Because you can do like a paper clipper AI or whatever with like golems in a fantasy world right? and, and hit all the same ideas and have the same sort of thrust to it. And it's important to recognize the role that non-magical magic systems have in fiction. If there's a better name for it, I'm not really sure what it is yet, but phlebotanum maybe is sometimes a word used yeah. just to describe um, a system or, or substance or whatever that is used to propel a story along to change things in a story. Yeah, It's something that is important to analyze because when you're trying to get a suspension of disbelief in your story, whether it's a movie, a book, or a play, or anything, the like you said, the rules don't necessarily have to be explained to the reader. But if you don't, as the author, at least understand why something happens the way it does or what triggers it, you're essentially cheating again in the sense of doing whatever you want to get the story that you want to tell across without caring whether it's rational or realistic or makes any sense. And yeah. that that word realistic is is obviously a point of contention for a lot of people who contend something like, oh, you know, it's a story about superheroes, like, and you're, and you're worried about the realism of the magic, or the it's a story but with psychics and ghosts in it, and you and you care about you know logic and consistency, like, well, yes, because otherwise what you're basically saying is that anything goes at any point at any, in the story, and for a lot of people, you know, many people don't care, but for a lot of people that really kills the suspense, kills any sense of cleverness in the story writing, and a lot of what I've noticed in series that go on for too long, or book series, TV shows that go on for too long, is a lot of the time is they'll start 
getting more and more sloppy with what's allowed in their world. And, right. Yeah, and that's that's really the, the sign that the writers have kind of either lost their way or they've run out of ways to make the story interesting without cheating. Yeah, and I think that you, even in rational fiction, I think that you can get by with not going fully in-depth on your rules. I think you can leave a lot of it implicit and mm-hmm. even not know some of it. It's just a matter of understanding why you're doing that. Right. I don't think that I don't think that you can come into writing uh, like even a short story and not understand anything about magic systems and why they exist in fiction and then write your story properly because I think you'll you might get lucky but I think you'd run into problems there. Right. You, even if you especially if you're trying to go soft on your magic system. Right. So, examples of magic systems. Do you have any particular standout favorites? Uh, favorites would probably include things like, as much as I hate, not hate, hate's too strong a word, as much as I don't generally enjoy the Mistborn series, the magic system obviously is a thing of beauty. The way it was designed and, and implemented is, was very well done, which is obviously what granted Sanderson a lot of his, his prestige amongst readers, is, is his ability to construct good magic systems. It's one of the more mechanical ones. It's yeah. very magic A is magic A, or uh, tech, like technical magic, scientific magic, whatever you want to call it. For a good blend of scientific kind of magic and wild magic, quote-unquote, the Dresden Files has a lot of really good rules in place to let you understand you know, why he does what he does and how he can take advantage of the rules of magic to, to do effective things while still having a lot of mystery in it. And my last one, I guess, Name of the Wind series, the Kingkiller Chronicles, it's got two magic systems in it, basically. One of them is called Sympathy, and it's essentially a scientific system of conservation of energy, things like that. The mechanism involved in Sympathy is magical, like it doesn't, you can't actually do it in real life, but everything else is completely numerical and studyable and by the numbers. So it's very much a, a researchable, testable, magical system. Whereas the other one, Naming, is completely wild magic, it's intuitive, it's, you know, Sudden, under, sudden bursts of understanding that allow you to do things that break the laws of reality, even in a world that has the magic system of sympathy that allows you to, you know, in sympathy, you'd be able to pick up an iron bar and move a uh, ton of iron if you have the heat and energy and everything necessary to channel into the difference of what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas with uh, naming, you could just speak the name of iron and have it melt into liquid and then reform it in a shape that you want. Something completely crazy like that, without any other kind of energy being used. Yeah, I think I agree with all of those. I haven't read through the entire Dresden Files series yet. I'm on book three right now, I think. But Oh, it's about to get good then. Book three is, is I would say, the last of the introductory books. After that, is it just keeps getting better, in my opinion. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Um, Brandon Sanderson, I really enjoy his magic magic systems. I think I've read... Pretty much everything that he's written. Mm-hmm. I think he... Yeah. I think he gets a lot of justifiable praise for that. And I think that he's sort of one of the heralds of a new era of fantasy in some ways. Because of, of that mindset that he brings to it. It's not just that the magic systems are ordered so much as it is that he brings some thought to the results of that ordering of the magic system. Like, okay, magic A is magic A. What results from that in society? 
Right. Like in, in Mistborn, there's a um, ability to push metal away from you. And that's that's all the ability does. But uh, one of the neat things that you can do with that is you can put iron spikes into the ground and have like a little railway that you can fly across by just pushing yourself off of spike after spike. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was like the first time I'd ever come across a magic system that had a neat thing like that that came out of what the magic system could do right. rather than just being like, I hate to pick on um, Lord of the Rings, but uh, <laughs> a lot of Gandalf stuff just comes out of nowhere. Right. And it's neat, but... Everything that Gandalf does is completely unexplainable yeah. and no, not even a token effort is given to explain it. It's just accepted because he's a wizard and these are the things that wizards do. And if you wonder why he does it in this circumstance and not another circumstance, then just rest assured knowing that he can't because some arcane rule exists that he's aware of that we, the readers are just completely unaware of for why he does what he does. Yeah. So Sanderson aside, I think um, Brian McClellan's powder mage series, I really I really enjoyed that. Um, it, it's the same sort of field. It has two, three magic, three magic systems to it, I think, that are at like various levels on the hard, soft, and um, static emergent like spectrums that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. I just picked up the first one, actually. I've got it sitting in my room. Yeah. King Killer Chronicles, you already said. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just looking at my bookshelves. <laughs> well, things like The Force... Yeah, in Star Wars, right? Where yeah, but the the problem is I don't I don't enjoy the Force. <laughs> yeah, things like the Force. Uh, I was going to just say as an example of what I what I would call a terrible magic system. I haven't read I haven't read every expanded universe book, so maybe some of them do it better than others. But even the ones that I've read that I enjoyed, the Force is still treated as this completely mysterious plot device. Yeah, and it's not it's not just the Force. It's pretty much everything in Star Wars that has some kind of all of their science fiction doesn't make sense either, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just the Force, it's 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 the other stuff, too. Um, right, Star Wars is, by all metrics, not science fiction, it's science fantasy. Right. Um, it's just a space opera, which is, again, like, lots of great stories can be told in that setting, but not rational stories, um, without a lot of effort being put into changing how it works. Yeah. Um, I, like, I like Charles Strauss, his Merchant Prince's portal fantasy it's a very simple system but i think it's got a lot of that same thought put into it and i can't say anything more without spoiling the like six book series but um. right right (laughs) i enjoyed that series it's very it's one of his more polarizing books but Mm -hmm. so there's something called Moe's scale of hardness of sci-fi hardness um i apply Mm -hmm. it to magic systems too because i i think generally they're pretty they're pretty similar as far as that goes so uh Right, mechanically, both of them are cheating the rules of reality as we understand them to change things in in the world. Yeah, most scale of sci-fi hardness sort of goes from diamond hard at one end, which is basically your science fiction is exactly as it is in real life. You're, you're, You're bringing science into the science fiction but you're not doing anything that cannot be done in real life. It's, it's mm-hmm. as reality. And you can do that in fantasy too, except no one is really going to call it fantasy unless you make it fantastic in some way, but still stay within the bounds of reality. And then at the other end is, well, on most scale, it's science and genre only, which is Star Wars is the um, example that everyone goes to. That, that doesn't really work with translating it to fantasy, but it basically just means 
you don't care about rules at all. You don't care about pinning things down and you don't care about consistency that much either. And a lot of fantasy will do that. So for magic systems, you can have your, your, your soft systems that, you know, like naming from uh, the King Killer Chronicles, um, like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. And then you can have your hard systems, which are, there are different levels of hardness to them. I think Brandon Sanderson tends to be at the hard end of it. I tend to write at the hard end of it, but at the very hardest that you can do a magic system, you're just lying to the audience a little bit. Right. You just have that one small lie or one big lie, like um, the Jumper series by Stephen Gould. Davy can teleport from one place to another, and that is the only like difference between our world and his world, is that he can teleport from one place to another, and that's the only rule that's ever broken. And it has its own rules within it. Does he take his clothes with him? Um, yeah. So it's in the, I think, second or third book, it's established that he takes, um, he's creating like a very temporal, temporary transplacement of two mm-hmm. places. And so he can bring his clothes with them. He can bring like people with them and, and things. And then it very gradually ramps up from that. Once he starts testing, I imagine, to see, like, how big he can, the things he can take with him more. Yeah, and does this trick called twinning, where he uh, will teleport to a place and then teleport right back to the place where he was. Right. And sort of create a mirror copy of himself, and he can use that to... Beat the crap out of someone? Well, yeah, beat the crap out of someone, or he uses it to uh, flood an office building. So he, like, teleports into the ocean, and then he teleports on top of the office building, and then he just teleports back and forth really far. So that's what I was going to ask. If there's no cooldown on his teleporting, he could essentially move material of any kind, really, from one place to another. Dig a giant hole, you know, in seconds. He could... Yep. Do bad guys have this ability in his world? Uh, no, it's just him. And he's okay. the only person who can teleport until... These are minor spoilers for the Jumper series, mm-hmm. which I mostly recommend. I think it gets into the weeds a little bit sometimes. But later on in the series, he's like, well, okay, when I teleport from place to place... My my momentum is not conserved because mm-hmm. I can go based on the rotation of the Earth. I I can go from Paris to like China or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then I should come out at like a, a high velocity, right? Because of the rotation of the Earth, and that doesn't happen. So he's like, okay, well maybe then I can change my velocity, like from a standing start. Mm-hmm. And it's got a lot of cool stuff like that, but there's only that one rule that you're ever asking the audience to accept is that he can teleport from place to place. Yeah. And one thing that I've always found interesting about magic systems and science fiction systems is you could, you could almost always dig deeper into why the thing doesn't make sense the way it's described. Like you just described, like that's a really good thing that the writer took into account. Like the earth is always spinning so obviously, you know, the momentum that you have as a person on a spinning Earth going from one part of it to another is not being translated. Uh, but the Earth's not just spinning, it's also moving in space. And, yeah. you know, that, uh, that momentum is, is comp- like, depending on how, what the central point is that you're comparing it to, enormous. Like, this, I, this is something that I think about all the time, every time some, any, any game or movie or book has anything about teleportation or... Uh, time travel, it's always time and space travel because it has to be. There's no there's no way to, um, 
you know, skip forward 10 seconds in time and stay in the same place, uh, the Earth would be far, far out away from anything that you are around. Yeah. And I think, I think as far as like most scale of, let's call it science, let's call it, let's call it Alexander Wales scale of magic system <laughs> hardness, right? Uh, I think part of the concept of hardness is how much you're willing to dig into those details. Exactly. How much, how much you're willing to say like, okay, well, he's teleporting from place to place. There should be changes in the gravitational waves and we can like track him down. Yeah. And I think that you would find that in very hard magic systems that like take the time to think about that. I think simpler magic systems tend to just say, all right, here's our rules. Don't, don't dig too deep mm -hmm. and don't, don't dig too greedily and too deep and, and you won't have any problems with it. Just take a, take us on our word that the magic system works as described and don't get into the weeds. Right. And it's worth noting, uh, like our last episode talked about rule of cool, that it tends to be the case where the more you dig into it, the harder your science fiction, the harder your magic system, the more realistic it is, the harder it is to pull off the rule of cool moments. Not always, but yeah. truly awe-inspiring, that was amazing things, are easier to predict when the magic system is more ordered and more understandable. The spontaneity of the wild magic system, or an unexplained, unexplainable magic system, is where the truly crazy shit starts happening. One example is Avatar, The Last Airbender. Once you understand what all four bending people can do, it's fairly fun and straightforward and you know maybe someone can be able someone's able to push and pull an entire river and that's really cool because like this one guy has so much you know bending power however he's able to achieve this through genetics or training or whatever he's able to push and pull a lot more water than other people great but the truly crazy stuff starts happening when avatar ang uh or chorus goes into the avatar state and then you start seeing things that no benders can do, even with control of all four elements. Like in the end of season one, uh, the giant uh, fish water spirit, because it starts taking in this extra plane of, of spirits and what the spirits can do, which is never really explained or examined or, or gone into at all. And it's completely separate from the relatively harder system of elemental bending. And so a lot of stories will have the hard system for the day-to-day -day stuff, and then pull in the wild magic for the crowning moment of awesome. Yeah. And, you know, how much you enjoy this as a reader or an audience will really depend on your perspective. But if it's done well, the wild magic's moments are treated appropriately, confined appropriately, so that they don't spill over too much and they don't solve everyone's problems for them. Yeah, they're, they're good for climaxes. That would bring us to Sanderson's first law of magic systems, which is that the ability of a magic system to solve conflicts is directly proportional to how much the reader understands that magic system. Which is, in other words, if your reader does not understand your magic system at all, you cannot use that magic system to resolve conflicts. And if you're reader understands your magic system very well, then your magic system can solve conflicts. Because right. the reader will accept that. And the sort of corollary to that is that magic systems at any level of explanation can generate conflicts just fine. So I think what you see in a lot of uh, 
in a lot of works that have two or three or four magic systems or whatever is that the protagonist will use hard magic mm -hmm. that's well-defined magic and the reader understands it and there's you can bring in foreshadowing and stuff like that with it uh, and then the antagonist will have a softer magic because it doesn't matter that much to a story like how some guy got super strong mm -hmm. right if if you're gonna like not defeat him by that then you're just using your you know your sigildry or whatever to bring him down but that that threat can be generated through soft magic as soft as it needs to be right and this is something as rational writers that we're obviously constantly trying to keep in mind is how do we make sure that the challenges we create are solvable with understandable magic systems and then go about the hard work of solving them with the magic systems that we have or the technology that we have or the psychic powers that we have whatever it is yeah and i think that if if you want an antagonist you don't need to really flesh out their magic system that much unless you're going to use that magic system against them it can just be you know you, you don't really need to understand how a volcano works if your antagonist is the volcano yes right? though the the obvious problem with that also can be though that you don't want the bad guy to also just do things randomly and, and in a completely unpredictable way. Otherwise, unless they're a natural force of some kind, right? Unless they're like a, yeah. a, a natural phenomenon. And we're going to have an episode later on about like the types of conflict yeah. and, and how to how to do villain and right. the different ways that you can do villains. But yeah, it, you can... You want to make sure that if, like, a villain is using a soft kind of magic, that they're not using it in a really, really dumb way. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, mean, I haven't I haven't watched the movie, but Suicide Squad recently came out, and a lot of reviews that I have happened upon online tend to mention the fact that, for some strange reason, the villains in Suicide Squad seem enormously powerful when the movie wants to show off how how bad and evil they are and powerful they are. But when it comes to the fight with the protagonists, they're ridiculously weak and, and don't use any of the powers they use earlier and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's and something that happens very yeah, happens all the time in all sorts of fiction. And it's always frustrating when that happens because like it's okay to have the villain have high magic, wild magic powers that are beyond the protagonist's comprehension, as long as you want a satisfying conflict resolution, and magic can can create lots of satisfying conflict resolution tools, but you you still need to apply them in a in a setting that makes sense. Yeah, I think magic can generate conflict too really well. There's a a series called um, the Rune Lords, and the central conceit is that uh, Rune Lords has like four or five magic systems so systems in it. It's a long series, but the central conceit is that you can use these special brands to give someone your attributes. And mm -hmm. so um, there are these rune lords who have been given the attributes of a lot of their, not servants, but the pe people will sign on to be, to have all their beauty taken from them permanently and given to this rune lord. And it only works so long as the like supplicants are still alive. And so their entire society is sort of based around this supplicant and rune lord relationship, and um, that drives a lot of the conflict in, right. in the book. And I, that's one of the things that I love about magic systems is that 
you can create a magic system and then there's immediate conflict inherent in those those rules. Exactly, yeah. Which will bring us to the static emergent distinction between uh, rules. We'll get back to the other two of Sanderson's laws later, but the static emergent distinction is basically, let's say that you have a magic system where you say a word and then a spell happens, which is kind of how Harry Potter works. It happens in Unsung. Um, that is a very static system all by, all by itself because the thing that occurs doesn't change. It doesn't have, there aren't any inputs on it. There aren't usually combinations of things that you can say that have like effects that come out of it. You just, I mean, this is how D and D works too. Right. I was just going to say, it's a very game gamey system in the sense that you are given a list of spells and whether you know what the entire list of spell spells are or not, like maybe there's some hidden ones that you have to discover or maybe you can create your own, but once the spell is created, it isn't static. Yeah, and there are a lot of there are a lot of magic systems like that. I wrote this story called uh, the Randy Prize, and I needed like a throwaway magic power that someone might have. So this, I can't remember his name. Cause it's a throwaway name and it's a throwaway character, but um, he snaps his finger, and the coin closest to him disappears. Right, right. Um, that is a completely static magic system. There's not like it's got. You know, with testing, you would find things out about it, but it it doesn't change at all, and it's always going to be the thing that it was at, at the beginning. Then on the other side, like, those, those are our static systems. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there are emergent systems. I don't know if you read Raw by uh, Sam Hughes. Is No, I've heard about it, but I haven't tried it. Yeah, it's a, it's a particle physics take on magic and it sets up a bunch of rules and then those rules all interact with each other mm-hmm. about how people have mana and then mana can be contained in things and mana can be redirected and once you start combining those rules that's where most of your action in the magic system comes in right i think uh sanderson's mistborn thing has some of that um because each of the powers are are static powers mm-hmm more or less um but then they then they work in combination with each other like there's a there's a uh power that makes you heavier and then there's a power that lets you push against metal and you use them in concert and you can like send that metal flying away from you right because your mass is what you're pushing back with so the heavier you are the stronger the force that you can push with is yeah so at the other end are emergent systems where you make you make a bunch of these static rules or maybe even dynamic rules and then together those create your magic system for you. Um, most like most key based systems. Um, I know it's in mother of learning. Glim Warden uses a, a variant on it. Most key based systems are that once you have your, your like 10 rules or whatever that are all pretty simple, then those come out to create everything else out of them. I think that that distinction between static and emergent, that you you have to treat them in really different ways because it's very easy if you're doing like a static system to keep it contained. Right. If you say a word and then lightning shoots out of your finger, that's enough to hang a whole story on, but you're never going beyond that. You don't need to think it through as much. Mm -hmm. And you're insights in the story are going to be how to use that one power rather than 
looking at this set of rules and seeing what things emerge from them. Right. And most stories are, most stories, magic system are somewhere on the continuum between these two, right? There'll be systems that have static effects and then your intention sometimes will matter. Even Harry Potter, most spells, you just have to know the words and the wand movements and it happens. Other spells require some kind of emotional state to trigger. And the stronger the emotional state, the stronger the spell, sometimes to a transformative level. And this is something that also is part of what allows for the rule of cool moments or the crowning moment of awesome. It's the ability to say, this is what usually happens when I'm, when this magic system is employed. This is how I understand the system to work. This is how my, my character has trained themselves and taught themselves to be better at this magic system. But with a sudden burst of insight or the right extreme circumstances, something amazing can happen. And it kind of still makes sense with what we understand about the magic system. It's not quite a cheat because you've, you've laid the groundwork that intention can matter, emotion can matter, whatever it is. Yeah. And you're still able to get that sudden burst of mysticism. Like, after the fact, you'll be like, oh, I can study what happened and understand why it happened. But in that moment, you still have that awe-inspiring change of everything I thought I knew is wrong. And that is part of what makes magic so engrossing as a system, as a phenomenon in fiction or, you know, in imagination. Yeah. And I think I think the, the primary distinction I'm talking about here is, is static effects versus static rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, um, you were talking about Name of the Wind. Sympathy has static rules, and then once you know those rules, that's all the cool stuff comes out of that. Right. Brian McClellan's Powder Mage series uh, has a very small cheat within it, within its, its very rules-based contained system. I think that's something that you, if you're writing rational fiction, you need to be aware of that, like, first of all, you need to find the exploits that that are available from your rules-based system or even from your static effects. Mm-hmm. But then you also need to not violate your own rules because something is neat. Right. And digging into, like we said before, about how you can dig into any magic system and go ever further into this is why this doesn't really work the way we think it does. That same thing can be said about the staticness of of an effect or rule. Like static rules versus static effects can can be a distinction, but even that short story that you that you wrote with the snap your finger and make a coin disappear, I remember in that story you had the person think briefly about you know, what defines a coin? Because this magic system is completely static. All it does is disappear coins, but some outside intelligence or potentially himself, his intelligence is still determining subconsciously what a coin is. So if it's just shaped like a coin, then you can shape anything like a coin and maybe make it disappear. Like I think radioactive waste was the example used. Yeah. So the exploits are always there. And you can always dig deeper to find more exploits if you think hard enough about it. That's part of what the rational fiction genre gets a lot of its coolness from, is being able to take it that one level deeper, find something cool about it that you can exploit, and write a story around or a scene around that. Yeah, there are a lot of ways that you can build a magic system that just does not make for compelling fiction or does not make for like good rationality. And there are different... There are different levels of depth that you can go to, and it's there's a, a balancing act with exposition and like how you're going to tell all this to the reader. I think my design doc for Glimwarden goes to like five pages right. of 
just like bullet points and stuff. And in a story, you can't you can't just insert all of that as like five pages of dense stuff. Yeah, and as a story with a magic system goes on, the role the magic system plays in it changes. And if you're writing a rational story, certain things become harder to do the more in-depth you go with the magic system and the more the story progresses. Early in the fiction story, you've got a magic system that is mostly opaque to the reader. And so drama happens as that magic system is being revealed. Whereas the more you understand the system, and the more the rules are revealed to the reader and the, and the protagonist, the harder it is to create moments of awe and, and mystery and, and things like that. Awe is a big one. Awe gets really yeah. difficult as you continue on. Right. So that's really the, I would say, the main point of tension between when you're designing a magic system, whether you want it to be hard or soft, and how how to... How the moments that you have in your mind when you're writing a story or imagining a story, how to reach those moments given the system that you have. And that's where a lot of people end up dropping the ball or cheating in little ways to make things go the way that they want them to. And there are a lot of ways they do that, like Technobabble or... Yeah, place of Technobabble in magic systems. Yeah. So at a certain point... This, this is when we're talking about drilling down. Mm-hmm. I think at a certain point, it is beneficial to you to, to just give up trying to drill down, drill down further. Right. Um, usually. Uh, so I was writing this story that I'm still... It's in the bin right now, waiting to be picked back up at some later date. But it's uh, The Wayward Souls, and its central thing is that people have souls, and there's like this white little sphere that drops out of your mouth when you die, right? And I had posted, uh, there's like other stuff to it, but I had posted on um, the world building subreddit about this magic system. And then people were like, well, well, what happens, you know, when did, when does a soul form? Right. Right. Because if, it, if your soul is like this physical thing that lives in your brain, you know, like do when, like when a woman miscarries, does a soul come out with that? Right. Or... And also, what was the first ancestor of, of humans, assuming the animals don't have souls, which is another question. What what was the first point in the evolutionary tree of the, of humans? Did souls suddenly start popping out of people's mouths when they died? Yeah. And, and there are so many questions that come with that that I got asked. And I was like, well, okay, I can like figure out answers to those. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't help in the story. Like it does, like the story is not the story is not about like miscarriages. Right. It's not about it's not about twins or um chimerism, which is another thing, like when you have two embryos and they merge together at some point and yet these people who are made up of like two different pairs of DNA. Um and that is something that you need to think about if you're saying souls literally exist. Uh but I was just and I was answering those questions, I was having fun with it. And then I was like, well, this is, this doesn't help my story at all. Right. My story is about a detective trying to solve a murder. You know, <laughs> it's not, none of this other stuff is like ever going to come up. It's not set in a world that has the technology necessary to like figure out these questions. Like it's, it'd be fine for people to have these questions. You just can't figure it out. Yeah. Um, I think at some point you need to just say, okay, I'm not going to drill down that far because it's not going to help 
you know, it's not going to help tell the story. And as long as the plot that you're writing and the events that you're writing don't use that ignorance to cheat something in the right. in the drama of the story, it doesn't matter. You're setting up these rules, and these rules are at a certain level, and it's not that important that you go down too much further. Mm-hmm. So long as those rules are well thought out, and so long as no one in, in setting is going to look at those rules and immediately exploit them. Right. And not to take this for granted, but there's some aspect of being materialists, which I'm assuming you are too. Yeah. That makes writing magic systems fun, but also to some degree reaffirming of of the worldview, because it's questions like that that are very... They're fun to play with because we know that what we're talking about is fictional, but many readers of fiction will believe in the supernatural to some extent, even if what they even if they understand that what they're reading or what they're watching is is fake. A lot of them can can go home that day from the movie theater and have their beliefs influenced by the work of fiction. Yeah, and I don't know how much harder it is for someone who believes in magic in the real world to write a fictional magic system. I don't know how much harder it is for a religious person who believes in souls to write a story that has magic that affects souls in it. But from what I've seen, it's easier for them to stop earlier when they're digging down to deeper levels and just take it for what it is when reading about it or watching it. The perspective as a materialist just helps a lot in being trained to constantly question how certain things work and what might cause them not to work when you examine the wider reality around them that they exist as part of. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things I like I I do want to dive down, mm-hmm. but it, in a lot of senses it's the antithesis of storytelling. Right. To, to dive down for just just for the sake of it. Just for the sake of it, just because you want to know, and like when you're making the the system, you want you have fun making it, and then you want to show it to other people. But if you can't do that within a storytelling framework, people are just going to get bored. Um, yeah. There's a there's a subreddit uh, which is Magic Building, and it is so boring. Like ninety percent of the time, people come up with these like complex, like rich magic systems that are just it's a wall of text right and there's no there's no story within it and if there's no story within it what's what's the point yeah yeah the magic the a magic system in and of itself is like a it's a tool yeah it's a tool exactly it's it's you know I've, I've got a friend who she enjoys fiction and every so often she'll enjoy fantasy but for the most part she doesn't like speculative fiction very much because to her Reading about all these magic systems and their rules and, and things like that is just totally boring. She just she she could not care less. And the challenge in, in engaging a reader like that, not that you necessarily have to if it's not your audience, but the challenge in engaging a reader like that in a story that has a magic system in it, like it takes a lot of skill to do that well. Yeah. I've found that like my priorities for things like this is different as someone who enjoys a lot of speculative fiction, because if I'm reading a non-speculative fiction book and a lot of the story has to do with the inner workings of, say, the FBI or a police department, I find that interesting. I'll read, you know, chapter after chapter of that, the same way I would in a in a fiction magical system about learning about a magic system. But it's still a matter of conveying information in an entertaining way, whether it's explaining how, how plants grow 
in The Martian so that he can survive on Mars with limited resources or explaining how a magic system works. Your skill as the author is is to engage the reader first and foremost and tell a good story first and foremost. Don't get caught up too much in, in the details and the minutiae, however interesting it is to you. Yeah, that that's the drawback of diamond hard sci-fi. Yeah. Is you can very much in your quest to make sure that the reader understands that everything's on the up and up, you can make a boring story. Yeah. I um I helped my sister look through manuscripts from the slush pile. She had an internship or maybe just a job at a publishing company. And I was living with her at the time and I read this amateur science fiction novel and it just it gave measurements for all the like spacecraft as they appeared. And it gave like <laughs> like degree measures of like how this can cannon was firing and stuff. And it's just <laughs> I was like, wow, that is very detail oriented, but it's not Yeah, a, a plus for effort, but Yeah. Yeah. No. That's not even remotely something that you want your reader to be thinking about at any point in the story. Yeah. Unless it specifically matters, like the ship needs to fit into a smaller than, than average space to dock, and even then, a measurement of how big the ship is does not need to be actually communicated. Right. And and that's that's the issue with magic systems, is you you can decide on all that stuff, right? You can have like a five-page document describing your magic system, but you don't need to put it all in. Right. And that goes back to the idea of killing your darlings, because writers spend hours and hours thinking out a magic system or researching how gravity works or whatever their story needs them to figure out, and only a tiny fraction of that ends up in the story, even the first draft, which is notoriously much bigger than the later drafts are after editing. Right. So that's part one of Exploring Magic Systems. In the next episode, we'll be talking about how to build an entertaining and rational magic system. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for Magic Systems Part 2.